This is the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. In the Wicked studio with me today is Alana Guayo. Uh, now, Alan, you got your BS in aeronautical science in 2011. You yes. came back for a second bachelor's in uh, aerospace and occupational safety, which you completed in 2016. But before we talk about that, I want to get into how I ran into you, which is at the uh, fly-in <laughs> uh, right. this year at the Daytona Beach Homecoming in uh, 2019. Um, tell me about the black and orange plane that you brought in. Uh, that is uh, my pride and joy. It's a Giles 202. I use it for mainly for aerobatic competitions. So I got it about just over four years ago. And the um, the main reason behind uh, why I got it was to be able to you know participate in all these competitions and move up in category. I was looking to fly advanced, and um, I wasn't able to at the moment. So that's uh, the main reason why I got that airplane. So what's it like to fly a plane like that? How does it? How would you compare it to say a Cessna 152? Uh, it's, it's almost like an extension of your body, really. Yeah. You are, the airplane will do whatever you tell it to do. And it'll do it so quick that, you know, you don't, you almost have no time to think about it. Um, so it's super responsive, unlike a 172 or any other airplane. Uh, it has probably one of the highest roll rates out there too, which is over 420 degrees per second. Wow. So yeah, in less than a second, you're already, you're already done a full roll. So it takes a bit of uh, getting used to, but uh, once you, you know, you got it down, it's, it, it's amazing. So what does that mean getting used to? Is it because the controls are very sensitive? Yeah. So you, you, at least I never flew anything like that before. You know, I mm -hmm. came from other airplanes such as a 172, the Cathlon, Pitts, and although some of them are very responsive, it's nothing even close to that. So it was quite of a steep curve too. Um, it just, take some time to get used to the airplane how do you find the limit how do you become comfortable in something like that uh you know the, the airplane is a lot more capable than than me i mean the, the limit the main limit there is the pilot and um, it's just a matter of you know going up and flying and getting used to you know certain things that you've never done before on an airplane um which could take some time you know you got that g tolerance that you need to build um this airplane is much more capable and, you know, I can pull up to eight G's. Uh, it's rated for 10, but I don't see, um, typically don't pull more than eight. Before that, I've never even been close to eight. So it's, you know, a bit of getting used to, and you, you, you know, you milk it in little by little, you don't go, you need to know how to, you know, walk before you can run. But, um, you know, little by little, that's how you, you get used to it. So do you have one of those, like, uh, you know, military, like, pressure suits, or do you just do, like, the no. exercises? So it's just exercising, uh, breathing techniques. Uh, those suits typically work with bleed air, which, mm -hmm. you know, from a turbine engine, which we don't have in these kinds of airplanes. So that's not an option for us. It's all about breathing techniques and, again, building the G-tolerance. Okay. Yeah. So you're uh, – you, you say that this uh, – the aircraft has more capability than you at Absolutely, this point, yeah. but you're uh, looking <clears throat> to upgrade aircraft. Um, what uh, what makes you want to step up to something uh, else? Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's harder. It's becoming harder and harder to compete every year. Mm. You know, the categories are getting more difficult. Even the same categories, they call it category creep, where it just slowly starts getting a little bit more difficult and everyone seems to be getting more capable airplanes so at a regional level this airplane will do just fine it it it, ju it does what it needs to do when you go to nationals and and compete at nationals it gets a little bit more you know 
a little harder to compete because you have more competitors and there's typically more advanced airplanes there. And if I have ever wanted to, if I ever wanted to compete at a world level, it would be very difficult with, you know, that amount of horsepower. I would need something with a little bit more horsepower, more capable, if you will. Okay. So, so uh, where do you, it's a, you've, you've been doing competitions for how long now? Um, going on 10 years now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, how, um, how do you get started with that? You know, um, you should start from the bottom and move, you know, move up as you go. Um, typically, you know, you have the primary category, which is the most basic category. It's just, a, I think it's uh, five or six maneuvers, simple stuff like a 45 degree climb, a loop, a roll, and a spin, and a couple other things. Um, so I always recommend starting there. Um, as far as how to get into the competition side of it, you know, it's a little bit harder because you you need access to an airplane and sometimes mm -hmm. that can be difficult. The way I did it was through a club. I was uh, able to find a club that was a nonprofit and made it affordable and feasible for me to do aerobatics. And that's how I started. So I got into the club, got proper training from qualified instructors. And, um, about a year after I joined the club, I think I did my first contest. My instructor pushed me to do them. I had no interest in competing. I just did it for fun, really. But um, he's like, hey, man, you know, you should go to a contest and, and, and see how you do. And he convinced me, and um, I did. So it was Sebring in 2010, I believe. And uh, did, it, did it primary, did the first, uh, you know, the, uh, the basic category, and just went downhill from there. Yeah. Uh, Sebring in 2010, was that your uh, first, uh, first place uh, finish? Uh, yes, that was my first contest, and it was uh, I got first place on that one. So, how how did it feel to win first uh, your first time out? Oh, great! I mean that that actually motivated me even more to you know keep uh, competing. Um, so, you know, the following year, I'm like, well, you know, I'm gonna move up to the next category, and I'm gonna do so well. <laughs> but <laughs> the reality was that I you know I got my butt kicked by everyone, so it was quite you know. An eye opener. I was like, well, you know, this is a little bit more challenging. I need to practice more and, you know, try to get more competitive. So the higher you go in category, the more dedication you need to it. Yeah. That's so just how it is. With, uh, you mentioned practicing, um, where can you practice? Obviously, you can't take off from 26 right and, like, do a barrel roll right off, uh, right over the not, airport. Not legally, uh, no, yeah. unless uh, it's wavered. Right, right. Well, maybe some of the military pilots could get away with that. But yeah. <laughs> FAA would probably have some unkind words for you, right? Yeah, so there, there's, a, there's a few uh, things you got to keep in mind when you're going up and practicing. If you're going out, you know, outside of Daytona or wherever, um, you have to be away from an airway at least four miles. Mm -hmm. You have to be clear of any airspace designated for an airport laterally. So outside of Charlie, outside of Delta, Bravo, whatever. So it has to be laterally. You can't just do it above or under it. Um, 1,500 feet is your limit, and the visibility is also another requirement. I think it's uh, about three miles visibility. So you need to factor all that in before you start going out and practicing on your own. Um, the best place to practice is at a wavered aerobatic box, which you can find um, several around here in Florida. There's one in Keystone. There's one in Sebring as well. And um, a good friend of mine that lives uh, down in South Florida, he lives in a flying community that has its own aerobatic box, which uh -huh. is great. So... You know, I, he invites me every once in a while to go down there and, and practice with him, and it's just a great place to practice. So. 
That's excellent. So, uh, what when you're flying, what instrumentation are you paying most attention to? What's the really important stuff? Just look outside. Just look outside. You're just looking outside most of the time. Yeah, your your main instruments inside the cockpit are your airspeed and your altimeter. That's pretty much all you're looking at. Um, you're not worried about your artificial horizon because that doesn't work in an aerobatic airplane. It doesn't keep up. Mm. Um, so your artificial horizon is your actual horizon outside. Um, but other than airspeed and altimeter, you're not really looking at anything inside the cockpit. Okay. Yeah, you need, uh, obviously, you need some wiggle room from certain maneuvers. So you need altitude and you need the energy and, and airspeed to, to be able to do some of the maneuvers as well. Okay. Yeah. So you've done some aerobatic instruction, is that right? Yes. Um, so let's pretend that I have my uh, private pilot's license uh, and I want to learn to do what you do. How, how do I start? Um, well, different ways. So a lot of people that I've, uh, that I've trained and, and, and taught aerobatics, they either have their own airplane or access to one. Um, the way I started was at the club I mentioned earlier. I was an instructor there for, for a while. And um, we had club members, club members that joined the club just to get the experience. And that's how I taught them through the club. So we had that, that airplane, which is a pits that was available to us um, to fly it and available to all the club members as well. Okay. Yep. Uh, how many ca- competitions do you participate in a particular year? I try to make at least five. So okay. five, maybe six. And that includes the U.S. Nationals. Okay, where's the Nationals usually held? Does that move around? Yeah, it moves around. It used to be um, in Texas, in uh, Denison, Texas. Then they moved it to Oshkosh for a couple of years. And then this year it was in Salina, Kansas. Okay. Do you often have to travel pretty far for a competition? Yeah. So they try, to, they try to place the competition somewhere in the middle of the United States. Okay. So it's, you know, sort of fair. Cent- it's central fair for to everyone. everyone. Yeah. To, to but get close their, to no one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's in the middle of nowhere and... It takes, you know, uh, at least a full day typically to get there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if and everything goes well, but you always have weather, you always have some sort of delays and problems. And, you know, you can expect a two-day trip typically just to get there and another two days just to get back home. Yeah. Is your yeah. plane a comfortable cruiser? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's, it's tight, but you're, you're reclined about 45 degrees. Okay. So it's kind of being like in a lawn chair, you know, it's quite comfortable for a few hours but then after that it gets a little bit a little bit annoying you you are wearing a parachute Mm -hmm. so that can get in the way of comfort but for the most part you know if it's two hours two and a half hours or less it's great Um, the airplane can fly for over four hours straight I've never been close to that I don't (laughs) think I want to it'll do it Um, and again I won't I'm the limit yeah another one example another example of limit there yeah so but yeah, it could, it could fly for that long, and if you can fly for that long, it will. So, okay. So I've done a fair amount of car racing, and there's usually some bureaucracy and like specialized training to navigate before you can go race a car. And um, if someone is clearly driving like an idiot, they get black flagged, they pulled off the course. Right. I'm wondering, uh, you know, do you ever see people? Uh, first, is there a bureaucracy like that for competitions? Is there, you know? Do you have to, can anybody with a PPL on a plane show up and try to compete or? Um, technically speaking, yes. So there's no such thing as an aerobatic rating or certificate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. All you need is proper training, which, you know, surprisingly, a lot of people don't have. 
and um, there's no special permit that you need to compete. So if you have an aerobatic airplane and you have the insurance requirements and everything is up to date as far as maintenance and, and, and all that with the airplane, um, you can pretty much show up to a competition. You have to be an IAC member, which is the International Aerobatic Club. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be an IAC member to uh, compete. So if you have all that, um, you know, you're more than welcome to join, but you are expected to, you know, have some sort of training prior to competing. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you uh, do you ever see people flying, like, beyond their limits? Is it clear when somebody's uncomfortable up there? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. We see it all the time. So some people, uh, you know, they move up a little bit too quickly. They might skip a category two. Um, but, you know, it's it. my opinion is all about baby steps. That's the way I see it. You you stay at a, co- you know, you stay at a category for, you know, some time and do well. I have a, my own criteria where for me to move and this personal criteria, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for me to move up a category, I needed to place top three consistently and get first place at least once. That was my, my way of moving up. There's nothing that limits you from moving up, but again, you're expected to fly at a certain level. Um, it is very structured. So we have a lot of rules. We have a lot of um, safety rules implemented in competitions. So it's not like an air show where you're just hugging the surface and flying upside down five feet from the ground we don't Mm -hmm. we don't do that in competition so every category has a floor Um, it's an altitude limit you can't go any lower than that so the first two the primary and sportsman um, it's typically around 1500 feet so you can't really go below that and then the higher you go in category the lower that floor gets so for me for advanced i think it's uh, 660 660 feet okay um is the competition like a matter of performing the maneuvers really precisely or what is that that's pretty much it so typically have uh four to five judges watching you and it's almost like figure skating so they're judging each maneuver and they're giving you a score from zero to ten obviously zero being the worst and ten being perfect Mm -hmm. and depending on the complexity of the maneuver each maneuver has a certain k value so when everything's added up you get an average and then you get your final score for that particular sequence you flew um, another big thing that, um, that helps out a lot is the presentation score, uh, which is um, greater now. It used to not, you know, they didn't really care much about presentation in the past, but now it's, you know, a big thing where if you're presenting the sequence right in front of the judges and, you know, making it look good right in front of them, mm-hmm. instead of being all scattered all around the box, then you get a, b- a better presentation score, which will help your overall score as well. Okay. Yeah. That's more about keeping the maneuvers yeah. tight then and all close together. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what's your favorite thing about aerobatics? Uh, I would say the challenge. You know, it's probably the most challenging form of or challenging form of flying that I've ever done, but also the most challenging thing I've ever done. And, um, you know, it's sometimes you look at these scores and they're just so close together that you got you have to try really hard to stand out. And I think that's one of the things that pushes me the most is, you know, trying to, I don't believe in perfection, but you try to get as close to perfect as possible. And, um, I really, I really enjoy that challenge. All right. Uh, is, is aerobatic pilot something that you can do for a living without being one of the sort of rock stars of the scene? Um, not as a competitive aerobatic pilot. No. Okay. Um, 
unfortunately it's a sport that requires a lot of um you know time and money invested in it um i personally don't know anyone that gets paid to fly at a competition um, but you do see guys getting paid to do air shows um, okay. and those are some of the top guys you know if you start doing air shows you, you don't expect to be making a lot of money the first few years uh, it'll take quite a bit to to get there so okay. yeah that that would be the only way i i can figure that you can make money flying aerobatics other than teaching too so mm -hmm. if you uh instruct or you have uh like an upset recovery program or uh, an aerobatic program that would be another way of of making money off of it okay yeah. um so you were born and raised in the Dominican Republic, yeah. and I saw on your Instagram that you got your first type rating on a little plastic pla passenger jet, maybe a Fisher-Price. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, tell me about what got you into airplanes. Um, probably that. You know, I, I, I'm the only pilot in my family. Uh, it wasn't something that was introduced to me when I was, you know, a kid. Mm. But, um, you know, I think what got me into it was the fact that most of my toys were airplanes for whatever reason. So... I was playing with, you know, toy airplanes all my life. And one day I said, you know, I want to, I want to fly the real thing. Um, and that's kind of how the, the ball got rolling. You know? So you originally came to Riddle because you wanted to fly, you know, passenger jets, right? Yeah. What made you change direction to aerobatics? Um, well, the fact that when I did my first intro ride in the pits, I just did it because I wanted it was a bucket list item that was it I wanted to fly an airplane upside down just to see how it felt yeah. um, but that one flight changed everything like I just said man this is this is different you know this is fun I like it I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot and slowly I started drifting into you know smaller planes and smaller and smaller and smaller and I had more interest in the smaller the airplane the more interested I was in it um, and I think that one flight just kind of changed everything. I'm still, you know, interested in, in pers maybe pursuing flying passengers, but um, I don't think I would enjoy it as much as the aerobatics. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned upset recovery. You were involved in the upset recovery training program here. That's right, yeah. Um, I've heard the term, but I'm not a pilot. Can you tell me what that is and what the training entails? So that is essentially um, teaching pilots how to recover from very unusual and extreme situations in an airplane. So mm -hmm. in the most effective way possible without hurting themselves or without hurting the airplane. Um, and that's uh, something huge nowadays. They're, they're, they're teaching that, they're training airline pilots um, in their airline training as well, in the simulator obviously. Um, but a lot of people want the actual exposure of mm -hmm. doing it in an actual airplane. Um, and that's what we did here. Um, when I was um, running the uh, the upset recovery program, we uh, we took the uh, students up in the super decathlon and you know slowly started exposing them to G loading mm -hmm. and uh, seeing what their bodies you know felt like, and then teaching them how to recover from those situations. Because believe it or not, I would say most and most than half of the pilots out there have never flown an airplane upside down. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what it feels like. So one thing is uh, doing it in a simulator. The other thing is doing it in real life, and it's vastly different. Yeah. So, so what does it feel like to fly upside down? You gotta try <laughs> it to understand. <laughs> There's no way of really of describing it, but you know, it's uh, it's really it's a different perspective. You know, you you look up, but you see down. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So everything it's just a different perspective of what you're usually you, you're used to seeing, but 
upside down. Um, obviously, when you're hang, you're hanging from your seat, so you got to mm. be you know nice yeah. and tight, yeah, strapped in, and um, then you have the the G loads, you know, positive Gs and negative Gs that you're not really used to. So when you're walking and sitting down, you're at one G your mm-hmm. entire life. Yeah. So getting you know those that that exposure to Gs, it's uh, it's quite interesting. So I couldn't like paint my bathtub blue and like do a handstand and, and in there and get the same. I mean that, that's a so. way of get, yeah. I mean that's <laughs> you can train yourself that way I suppose, just to get used to the negatives. Yeah. Uh, so why did you come back for that second bachelor's in occupational safety? Um, a couple of reasons. I first reason was I wanted to have a backup in mm-hmm. case something happened and I wasn't able to fly, because with an aeronautical science degree, you know that there's not a whole lot of options there other than flying mm-hmm. so i ha- i've always had a strong interest for safety and um that's why i pursued that second degree because um safety safety is a big thing in in aviation and any kind of industry so i came here back for that and also i i went back home after my first degree things didn't really work out the way i planned them to so I came back just to figure things out also mm-hmm. and um, try to, you know, come back and, and stay in the, in the United States and pursue a, uh, a career here in the United States. So that's what happened. You know, after I graduated, I got a work permit and um, got hired here at Embry-Riddle as a flight instructor and then ended up managing the upset recovery program. Got the work visa. I got all that stuff later on and and then um, eventually got um, became a permanent resident. So little steps I took yeah well so that's really interesting that you have a passion for safety and yet you do aerobatics I feel like a lot of people uh would think that those are at odds with one another because one seems inherently risky right you would think yes um and it is potentially you know risky um there's always a risk involved but at least with the upset recovery um, portion of it you know safety is um that's the main focus because you are literally teaching people how not to let an airplane kill them. Mm-hmm. So you know, it doesn't get any safer than that, if you ask me. Right. Um, so it does focus on safety quite a bit. So um, I get the feeling that you're a very competitive person. Um, I've heard yeah. that you've made people cry while playing Mario Kart on the Nintendo 64. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about I'm that. I'm going to confirm or deny that. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, it's uh it, it started as an inside joke you yeah. know and um I've, I've always been a, a fan of video games but the old school stuff yeah. like i have a nintendo an original one i have a uh, sega genesis i have a sega dreamcast all that stuff so nothing beyond a dreamcast i don't do playstation four whatever how many how many i don't know I don't even seven know. I yeah <laughs> no call of duty none of that um and I always had a thing for Mario Kart, and I got really good at it, and it became an inside joke where we did a, a world championship, <laughs> and um, someone got really upset one day, <laughs> and um, yeah, that's that's that. All I'll right. Leave it at that. <laughs> I wasn't ever great at this uh, Mario Kart on the 64, but I yeah. played it a lot on the Super Nintendo, and yeah. that was my jam. I I played it so much on the on the 64. I knew every single shortcut, every single cheat. Oh, yeah. You know, I got good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have gotten paid to do that, but right. Well, know. there are people getting paid these days. Oh, yeah, where? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, that's what I hear anyway. You know, yeah. uh, video game competitions. 
All right, so uh, now it's time for our lightning round. You've made it this far. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you think you're uh, going to give you five questions, and you're going to give me five answers, and hopefully they, you know, they'll match. Okay. Uh, <laughs> are uh, you ready? Are they time-based? or? No, no. You've got, you've got as much time as you want. Okay. All Let's right. hear them. So uh, you can fly any plane ever made from anywhere to anywhere. What do you choose? An Edge 540. Oh, yeah? All-time favorite airplane. And where, where would you go from and to? Well, I would probably go across the country doing aerobatics in it. All right. It's a fully aerobatic airplane. Not a, not a real travel airplane, but, again, another you aerobatic it, airplane, yeah. Yeah, you make it work. You're yeah, not going to put it on a truck. and No. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, so if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ooh. Now, you don't have to spend your entire life reading that book, but you can't read any other books. Um, well, believe it or not, there's a book called Everything Explained, and it tells you every little thing you need to know about flying and regulations, and I found that to be the most useful book ever. I've used it for interview prep. I've used it for flight instruction, um, anything related to my career, and it's been very helpful. So. Again, it's not a novel or anything like that. It's just really a book on facts and regulations, but it's my go-to book. Right on. Yeah. That's that's a totally fair answer. Yeah. That's that's game. All right. Uh, what's your favorite cartoon character of all time? Mm. That's a tough one. Probably Mickey. Yeah. Mickey Mouse. Yeah. That was the first, uh, as far as I can remember, first cartoon I have ever watched uh, when I was a kid, and. I think that's uh, that was the way the the quickest way I learned English. It was watching Mickey, you know, watching cartoons in English, not in Spanish. Yeah. So that thing Mickey Mouse helped me out a lot. <laughs> uh, so picture your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. You're, you've got it in your hands. Mm -hmm. You're about to take a bite. What's inside? Um, provolone cheese and a lot of bacon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What kind of, of bread do you put it on? white yeah yeah just white bread. yeah yeah can't get in uh, interfere with the textures of the no. bacon with the you know, not too many grains and uh right. oats and things in there <laughs> all right a lot of butter too <laughs> there you yeah. go you're living che cheese bacon and a lot of butter yeah yeah you don't take any risks oh, huh? no. <laughs> diet starts tomorrow all right <laughs> so if you could live for a week as any person in history who would you be Ooh. For a week, probably Elon Musk. Oh, there you yeah. go. I like what he's doing. All right. Yeah. Well, that wraps up the lightning round, and uh, that right. wraps up our interview. Uh, thanks very much for uh, hey, joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed uh, the time here. Excellent. Appreciate it. All right. The Talent Talks podcast is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from the Maury Hosseini Student Union at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.